Well, I'm reading this morning from the 21st chapter of 1 Samuel, if you'd like to follow along. For the reading of God's Word, we continue our, our look at uh, the man uh, named David, the most significant man in Scripture other than Jesus. It takes 66 chapters to tell David's story. He becomes the most prolific leader God had for his people. He is the one who established the, the, tab, the temple from a tabernacle, a portable tabernacle, to uh, a fixed building in the temple. He's the man who, who brought unity to the tribes of Israel and uh, established Jerusalem as a city unto God. He's a man of such significance that even Jesus Christ is identified as a son of David. And the Bible says about David something it doesn't say about anyone else. That David has a man after God's own heart. I want to have... I want to be someone who has a heart after God. And so our look at David this morning as, we continue, as he continues his journey to find that life is not un, unveiling itself as perhaps he thought. And through the trials and tribulations and mistakes and miscalculations, uh, David's journey begins. And I'm interested especially in him because that's a lot like the way we live. I used to tell my girls when they were teenage girls and they dreamed of the future and how life would be, picture your ideal life, write it down on a piece of paper if you want to, put it in your diary, get it all fixed, every last thing, who your husband wants to, what kind of a husband you want, how many kids you want, where you want to do all that stuff, get it on a piece of paper and then fold it up and set it aside <laughs> because life likely will not unroll itself anywhere near our dream and, and, and desires, but God is consistent with us through all of that and what a example we see in David's story and so we read an odd set of scripture this morning from the 21st chapter of the book of first Samuel uh, 11 verses or 10 verses David went to Nob that's a city uh, near Jerusalem to Ahimelech the priest Ahimelech trembled when he met him and said why are you alone why is no one with you David answered Ahimelech the priest well, he said, the king has charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I've told them only to meet me at a certain place. David said, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. The priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there's some of the consecrated bread here. Providing the men have kept themselves from women they would be okay to eat. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's things are holy even on mission. Even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave David the consecrated bread, except there was no bread there, except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by bread on the day it was taken away. Verse 7, Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, Detained before the Lord, he was doing the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. David asked Ahimelech then, Do you have any spirit or sword here? Or sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapons because the king's business was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. It is wrapped in a linen cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it, there's no sword here but that one. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. 
But the servants of Achaia said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his, his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And David took the words to heart and was very much afraid of Achaia, king of Gath. You remember that it has just been a couple of years since the most powerfully religious man in all of Israel showed up in David's hometown. It was Samuel the prophet, the mighty prophet, who, who uh, arrived one day leading a, a young cow behind him and at Bethlehem announced that we're going to have a church service tonight. It's going to involve a sacrifice unto God and then we're going to have a big banquet of everything that's left over. And to this man named Jesse, he said, be sure you can come and invite your sons along with you. Only Samuel and God knew Samuel's mission. For God had sent Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint for him the next king of Israel because King Saul had failed repeatedly to carry out God's will and way and God had simply removed his anointing from King Saul. And you know the story of how Samuel uh, looked at all the sons of Jesse, all seven of them. The first one came in, Eliab, the one who held the birthright in this world, the one to whom was to, to inherit everything from Jesse's father, the one that should have been uh, picked for and selected to every way to represent the family. And we remember the story of how when Eliab entered the room, J Samuel stood up and got his jar of anointing oil and started taking the cap off to anoint him because he said, surely this is God's anointing. And God said to Samuel, sit down, Samuel, he's not the one. And the next son came, and the next son came, and Samuel did the same thing. By the time the fourth son came, Samuel wasn't even getting up anymore. And all seven sons paraded down the main center aisle before Samuel, and the Lord said, Not any of these. And the Lord tells Samuel something significant. Samuel, you look at the outward appearance of men, but I look at their in inward heart and their motives and their intentions. And it's not this guy. And Samuel said to Jesse, you're supposed to bring your sons. And God has ordered that and, and, and requested that. And God doesn't make mistakes. And God can count. By the way, God can count, you know. And uh, surely there's another. And Jesse said, oh, there's the run of the family. There's the runt. He's out there with the sheep. And Samuel said, go get him. We'll not start church until he comes. And the Bible said when young David walked in the room, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samuel and God said, Arise and anoint him. He is the one. And in front of his brothers and in front of his father and in front of the most dignified people at all of Bethlehem, Samuel anoints with this special anointing oil the young shepherd boy David. And Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him at that time in a mighty way. It's shocking to me that after the church service was over and after the dinner on the grounds was over, what happened next? Nothing really happened. Everybody went home. David went back to the, to the pasture with his sheep and Jesse went home and Samuel went home. It didn't uh, unroll quite like you would think the coronation of a king uh, would take place. It wasn't just a, a little while after that, though, that uh, the Philistines and the Philistine army entered the territory of Israel. And the Bible doesn't say why they came in, except that maybe they had a giant to show off. And the army of Saul ran out to meet the army of the Philistines. And they, they took camp on, on, on two opposite hills with a valley in between. And the valley would become the battlefield. And giant Goliath, six foot, nine foot six, stepped out and said there's no reason for all of us to fight now guys because we're going to get bloody and a lot of people get hurt i challenge you this you israel you simply present a man to fight me and the nation of the winner will become 
ruler over the nation of the loser as they will become slaves. And Saul and his army were scared and terrified. And for 40 days, twice a day, Goliath taunted the people of God and, and, and blasphemed God and mocked God's name and made fun of him. And God's people did nothing but run and hide, the Bible said, every morning and every evening. You ever had a problem that was with you constantly? Last thought of the day. First thought of the morning. Can't get away from it. Israel's army was that way. David was sent to check on his brothers who were in the army. Young David with, with uh, carrying groceries for them and delivering food to them. When he, he got into camp just as the giant began his morning public uh, denying of God's power. And you know the story of how David was so shocked that no one did anything about it that David said, this man defies the God of Israel and I'll go fight him. And they said, you're just a kid and you can't do anything. And, and Saul said, you're just a heart player and a, and a keeper of sheep. And what are you among a fighting machine like this? And David said, he comes at us with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come at him in the name of the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> and this day the Lord is going to give the army of the Philistines to the hand of Israel and to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David went out and with a slingshot and a rock and, and, and flung that rock. <clears throat> I'm still not sure how to describe throwing a rock from a slingshot. I don't know if you throw it. I don't know if you sling it. I don't know if it's slung. I, I don't know what the right term would be, but David did it. And God put his GPS system on that rock and it hit the exact place in Goliath that was unprotected and the big man went down and you could have heard a pin drop out in the battlefield that day when the big man fell to his knees and David cut his head off with his own sword because the anointing of God was upon David in a mighty way. And the people, David becomes a national hero that day. And people begin to sing his praises. Oh, King Saul slain thousands, but David ten thousands. And that day, the Bible says, the jealousy of Saul became so great, he could not stand to be in David's presence, and he said, I'm going to take his life. And the Bible says that an evil spirit came upon Saul, and as David played the harp for Saul to soothe him through a period of depression of sorts, Saul took his spear out and threw it at David, trying to pin him to the wall. He did that twice that day. He would throw a spear at him six times before uh, this decade was over. He would give the word out, King Saul would give the word that David is the most wanted man, that David is the Osama bin Laden of his day. He's the guy where everybody looks for. There's a prize for whoever finds him and kills him. He put the word out that David is the enemy. And what did David do? David begins to run. And he headed to the city of Nob. And for the first time in David's story, God is not mentioned. The first time in David's story, and from his anointing as king and recognition that by God and God's spirit come upon him, for the first time in his story, God is not involved in the equation. David doesn't ask God if he should go. David doesn't ask God to go with him. David doesn't go ask God and inquire of the Lord as to what to do. David got scared and ran away to the city of Nob, about 12 miles from Jerusalem, a city that, that, uh, that housed 85 priests in a little temple that sat on the hill and, and had the nickname of the city of priests. David became so afraid, he forgot God's anointing touch on his life. Have you and I ever been that way? I don't know about you, but I'll answer for me. Absolutely. 
Sometimes life is so scary and life events are so hard and life has unrolled itself in a way I never anticipated having to deal with these things and do this. Sometimes my failures have caused that. Sometimes my misdirection have caused that and get scared to death and become motivated by my fear. It's amazing to me that the man who's had a heart after God was that way. Fear seems to become his motivation instead of God. Fear seems to become the overriding factor in his life instead of faith in God. By the way, fear and faith are exact opposites. You can't have one as your master and the other as your companion. You have one or the other. And in fact, we in the church of America today, followers of God Almighty, are more motivated by our fears for tomorrow than we are by the faith we know we have today. And while I, I look at David and I think, how could he have been so foolish and how could he have taken matters into his own hands and done this, I realize that he is descriptive of the way that we live our lives. And instead of trusting God, David gave in to his fear. I want to tell you again this morning, my friends, trust in God is the key to all connections of life. Trust in God. Trust in God. That's as simple as it can be. It is trust in God, but, we, it, but it is a difficult thing to always do, and it is hard to do when our lives are on the line. And we believe that God has only good plans for us, and we believe that God has a way to guide our lives, and the way of God is great, and the will of God is the way we ought to live, and all things about God, but it requires our trusting in Him in all situations. And David was so motivated by his fear, it seemed as though he stopped trusting God, and he begins to do out-of-character things, and he runs to the city of Nob, and he talks to the head guy, Ahimelech, the priest in the temple. And he begins to tell half-truths, and he begins to make compromising statements, and he begins to take a few facts and, and, and create a story that, that is not true to lead Ahimelech into in, in a, a wrong perception. And for David, it actually would be classified, I think, as, as finally David was sinning before the Lord. And the end of the story, it says that there was a, the, the, the head herdsman of King Saul who was listening to all of this. Saul, he went back and told Saul where David was. And Saul sent his army and killed all of these priests. Eighty-five men of this city died that day because of David's stepping out of the path that he should have been on with God and taking matters into his own hands. And now Nob is called the, the formerly city of priests because Saul slaughters all of them including Ahimelech. And David comes into the temple. We read it the first verse. And Ahimelech is terrified. And he said, what are you doing here? Because David was a national hero. They all knew who he was. And then Ahimelech said, why are you here by yourself? You lead great armies of men. What's going on? And David concocts a story. I'm on a secret mission. That's true. He leads him to believe a secret mission by King Saul. That's false. David was running from Saul. And David says to Himelech, what do you have to eat? I got a few men that are going to meet me here, but we're hungry. And Himelech said, all we have to eat is a consecrated bread. We don't understand that in our day and time, but every day of the first day of the week, 12 loaves of bread with a specific ingredients were baked and they were placed on a golden table before the Lord. And it was a sacrifice and a reminder of, 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 of the daily bread that God gives. It was a, it was a very sacred thing. And David said, I'm hungry, and my need supersedes my respect for the sacred things of God. 
And David begins to do some profane things with the sacred thing of God. And Ahimelech, still in his fear, was afraid probably to deny David. And he said, there's, David said, I need five loaves of bread. And Ahimelech said, they're, they're, they're the showbread, uh, Scripture calls it. And David took those. And then David asked another unusual question that he had to know the answer to. Do you have anything to fight with? I left home so fast on this secret mission from God that, that I didn't even have time to take my weapon. I, I'm, I'm on a mission from, from Saul. I'm on a secret mission from Saul, and it's dangerous, and it's all those mysterious things. And I just forgot my weapons. Do you have anything to fight with? And Ahimelech said only the Saul of Goliath. David had to know that was there, but only the Saul, only the sword you took off of Goliath. And David said, I'll take it. There's not another one like it in all the world. It was custom made for King Saul. David took it and strapped it on his waist. And then David did something even more unusual. David fled then Nob and headed, verse 10, and headed towards the city of Gath. Anybody recognize the name of the city of Gath? It had a famous person come from it. Gath is the home of Goliath the giant. David left the territory of Israel. David fled not only God's, God's direction. David fled the country. And David said the last place the king would ever look for me would be in the city of our greatest enemy. And he began to set up residence outside of God's territory in the very city of Gath, carrying Goliath's sword. Would anybody there have noticed Something's unusual about this guy that's just showed up. And the men said, we recognize David. They said, he's the king of Israel. He's the guy who killed Goliath. By the way, if you remember the story of David and Goliath, David picked five smooth stones up from the brook. Why did he pick five when there was only one giant? Most commentators believe Goliath had four brothers who were all giants. And guess where they lived? They would have lived in the city of Gath. And when he becomes known and seen and identified, David does something even crazier that I didn't read on in the rest of the chapter. David suddenly pretends to be a madman. He begins to do things like an animal, crawl, walk on his knees and his feet. Some commentators say that David perhaps went out to the countryside and began to eat grass like an animal. David let the saliva in his mouth run out of his mouth and drool down on his beard. Some commentators say that in a description of this from the a study of the original Hebrew language, David began to act like a person who was having what we would call an epileptic seizure. And the king said, this guy can't be a, a threat to me and a danger to me. He's crazy. In fact, the king said, the king actually said, do I need another madman in this town? Don't I have enough already? And they would begin to drive David out. The most significant man of Scripture, the man who had a specific uh, uh, anointing of God on his life, a man who would, who would place a vital role in, in history from this point on, has lied to the priest, has told half-truths in the very house of God has fled to a place he should never have been outside the territory of Israel into the land of the Philistines and the city of Gath. And now God's anointing is pretending to be a madman because he thinks it will keep him safe. David, 
took actions he shouldn't have taken and went to a city in a place he shouldn't have been and went to church for the wrong reason and used the sacred things of God in a profound, profane way for his own personal well-beings and now has gone over to the enemy's side and begins to live like a madman. Where is God in the life of David at this moment in time? David would, in fact, spend about 10 years on this journey before he would actually become uh, sitting on the throne, seated on the throne of Israel. What in the world is happening to David? Well, I want to say to you four things from this story. First of all, I want to remind you that what we focus our attention on in life matters. What we choose to see with all of our being matters. What we choose to set our hearts on matters. You can't set your hearts on the wrong things and have a right behavior and end up in the right place. What we focus on matters. It's amazing that in the story of David and Goliath, out in the hillside, Goliath stood up, a, a giant of a man, nine foot plus tall. He had, a, he had enough body armor on to be the weight of, a, of an average man. Scripture says he was big and bad and mean and tough, and he scared the nation of Israel and the army every day for 40 days. But when David got on the scene, he saw Goliath, but he saw Goliath differently than the rest of the army. He saw Goliath in the shadow of God Almighty. He looked past the enemy and the giant that was standing there to see God behind it all. He looked past the, the formidable task and force that was in front of him that had terrified and paralyzed activity from all to see God in the midst of all of this. And David would say to Goliath, I'm not worried about you. God's going to fight and God's going to take care of you. And I'm here to carry out God's will and God's way. And in this case, I'm here to throw God's rock. But when David focuses on Saul, he seems to lose all sight of God. There is no place in Scripture where it talks about uh, David's story that talks about Saul's anger and Saul's attempt to kill David. There's no place that talks about David seeing God past all of that. While Goliath, uh, David was able to look past Goliath, he, he did not get his sights above King Saul. And it bred a years and behavior that were not of God that caused destruction. At least 85 of God's priest to, to be killed and the terror and focus that it brought on those around him. Some of us would say and probably all of us would say if we're honest that life has not turned out exactly like we thought it would. We, we've had sickness come in, we've had death, we've had tragedy. Uh, we've, we've worked in an environment that, that while we believe God was blessing us there, the, the, the place is uh, not a very good place and the boss is mean and it's a, it's a place that doesn't honor God. We go to school in the midst of settings that are not godly. We have to deal with all kinds of conflicts and we wonder where is God? Trouble at home, trouble in the family, people around us who don't do what they ought to be doing. We find that people don't like us. Could you imagine that? I think I'm a pretty nice guy, but it shocks me that there's some people that don't like me. Shame on them. <laughs> My mother would say shame on them. <laughs> people don't like us for who we are. And if we're not careful, we get so consumed by what we face. We forget a great God who seeks to lead us, guide us, direct us, and protect us, and do so in a way that not only gives us redemption, but glorifies the name of God. How about a church that sees only the problems they face 
As a church, we can do that. We can get so consumed by what we don't have that we think we have or what we have that we wish we didn't have. And we get, we get so focused on thinking that's all there is. And it's easy for the very tous of God to forget to look past what's going on to see God in the midst of it all. In fact, God, Jesus said when he was on this earth, I'm going to build my church. And even the devil himself can't destroy it and stop it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, Jesus said. So why is the stuff that's keeping us from being the people we ought to be in the church, we ought to be stopping us? Could it be because we focused on the wrong things? I remind you this morning, God is large and God is in charge. I remind you of the little truth I learned from Curtis, Germany. God is going to win. In fact, God already has won. And what we have to deal with right now and go through with the saws in our lives and the opposition in our life is just a part of, of what takes place in a sin-bred world. But God is still able to guide us through to where He wants us to be in the midst of great opposition and His blessings upon our life. And the anointing of God stayed on David even when he was way off track. Secondly, I want to point out to you that Motive, being motivated by fear and not trust usually brings wrong action. It was fear that drove David to run to Nob. It was fear that drove David to run to the city of Gath. It was fear that, ran, that caused David to go into the very house of God and, 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 and lie about it, things. It was fear and not trust. Fear can supersede trust, and fear is such a motivator in life. I'll tell you folks, it's a scary world out there. It's a scary world every step of the way in every phase of life. It's scary for our children. It's scary for all. It's a fearful world. Could that be why the Bible speaks so much about letting God calm our fears? Jesus said his most often thing that he said to those who listened to him during his three-year ministry, the most often thing said was, fear not. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Some have studied all of God's words, say that there are 365 different times where the word of the Lord comes to people say, don't be afraid, trust in me. They've made the, the connection to a promise and a command and a promise for every day of the year. We cannot be motivated. We cannot let fear motivate us if we're going to let God work in our lives the way he wants to work. And shame on us. I lead the way of being afraid of things. I'm, I've been scared of various things all my life, but, but God helps us to have faith in Him, and faith and trust overcomes fear. And if we're motivated by fear, we're not going to take the action God wants us to have. We're not going to set our lives in the right course. We're not going to, to, to stay under God's protection the way He would like us to. David not only focused on the wrong thing, David became motivated by fear. And then David begins to step out into blatant sin. We identify sin in our denomination as a willful transaction of a known law of God. David begins to do what he knows he shouldn't do. David doesn't just casually make a mistake that, that uh, would classify as a sin for him. David doesn't just, just, just have a miscommunication or something. David willfully goes against what he knows he should be doing. Goes into the temple begins to lie about his men, begins to lie about being hungry, doesn't care that it's the bread dedicated to God, he's hungry, and that must supersede his need, uh, that must supersede the significance of the things of God. And then David begins 
to offer compromising statements and half-truths that ultimately end in creating a very distruthful situation, an untruthful situation, and destruction takes place. And David's action leads to great destruction. I want to remind you folks that there's an enemy for our souls at work. God is at work to help us. There's an enemy at work to destroy us. We don't talk a lot about the devil in the church today. And, and church uh, growth experts tell you that the devil's not a good topic to mention in church. And, and they tell you not to talk about sin because it makes people feel bad. And they tell you not to use the word repentance because that's an old-fashioned word. But I want to tell you, those three things are at the heart of the very Word of God. And if God mentions them over and over and over again, the church's responsibility is to realize the truth of what's there. There's an enemy at work for our souls. And the devil would destroy everything in our lives if we let him. He would break every marriage represented here. He would destroy every home. That's not an old-fashioned statement that, that are a, a, a reactionary statement. That is the truth of God's Word. And at no point this side of heaven as a Christian person ever immune from the works of the devil. If the devil attacked Jesus in such a way that was so consuming, he's tempted in every situation we could ever be tempted. Who are we to think that we're not going to be subject to the attacks of the enemy? And we better be careful when that happens of how we live. And we better be living the way God wants us to live. And we ought to tell the truth. By the way, God knows the truth. I was taught honesty is the best policy. But I don't ever remember anybody telling me how hard that is sometimes and how dangerous that can be sometimes. But God, who is a God of truth, who honors that and when focused on the wrong things and when motivated by fear, the only thing that David seemed to could follow next was to, was to begin to, to, to do things he, know, he knows he shouldn't do and say things he knows he shouldn't say. And the result is David becomes in, the, in a very unusual territory of just being a sinner. By the way, folks, that's all of us. We can dress ourselves up and we can pretend and we can call ourselves something we're not, we're, that's not true. But a man told me one time, you can put your boots in the oven and call them biscuits, but that don't make it so. Anybody ever heard that? That's a Texas statement, I think. I asked him to repeat it. I had never heard it. You can put your boots in the oven and call them biscuits if you want, but that don't make it so. And we can pretend that we're, we're not out of fellowship with God. And we can pretend that we're all good people. Everybody tells us that. But the truth of the matter is God knows what's in our hearts. And when focused on the wrong thing and motivated by the wrong thing, the result is usually the wrong thing. And repentance always follows that. And the end of this story in these two or three chapters is when confronted with his own action and confronted with his own sin, David accepts his actions responsibility for his actions and confesses to God and calls out to God again oh God have mercy on me it's the one thing that kept David at the heart of God it's the one thing that David that draws David back to God again and again and again David is not a man after God's own heart because he lived a perfect life David is a man after God's own heart because when he was confronted with his actions and realized he had done wrong and realized he had sinned, he went back to God and begged for mercy. Oh God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me is what he said after his event with Bathsheba. We would say David repented, asked for God's forgiveness. And to the shock of all things in this story and many more, God didn't, David didn't take God with him, it seems, to 
knob. That's not a theologically correct way to say it. David didn't take God with him to the city of Gath. But God was there waiting for David to call on his name and to respond to him. And God didn't kick him out. God extended grace and mercy and forgiveness and helped David get back on the right track, even though David was the one that got off track. And the fact of the matter is, David was God's anointed, and David was God's chosen. And if there was anybody that doubted it, when David faced Goliath, it should be evident that God is with this kid. And God had so designated David to be on the throne of the nation of his people. Yet for a moment, David let life overcome him and stepped out of the way he should live and really messed up. But thank God he came to his senses and called upon God and a God of mercy and a God of great grace and a God of great love reached down and forgave him and put him on the right path and helped him along to be what he wanted him to be. We're not perfect by any means. If anybody here thinks you are, just listen to those around you probably and you'll know that we're not perfect. But we can be forgiven. And I'll take forgiveness being a forgiven person over being perfect every day of the week and twice on Sunday. That's another good Texas state statement. Every day of the week and try, twice on Sunday. Thank God for His grace. When we get off track, David will get back on track here in a little while, but not for a while. Focused on the wrong thing, motivated by fear, living on half-truths that proved to be not a truth at all, going to where he shouldn't have been, adopting a mindset he shouldn't have had. Destruction was a result, but he cried out to God for mercy. And the story of David does not end here. The story of David continues not because of David, but because of a great God. I read this week, again, the story of a near-famous basketball coach in town. If you're, if you're old enough to remember and if you follow that college basketball at Southern Methodist University, one of the basketball coaches that, that helped them reach a national recognition was a guy named Dave Bliss. And he was a famous guy in the coach of collegiate basketball. And now, back about 20 years ago, or a little bit more, he was a sought-after speaker. He was a sought-after coach. Uh, he, was, uh, he was one of the up-and-coming guys. And after a career at SMU in which he, he was extremely successful, Baylor University became one that said, we've got to have, we've got to have him for our coach. And Baylor lost an all-out effort to get Dave Bliss to leave his famed Southern Methodist University and become the coach of Baylor. They dangled a lot of money in front of him. They told him he was great so much that he perhaps he began to believe himself. And finally, the money got big enough, and he said, okay. And Dave Bliss turned his back on SMU and went to Baylor and became a coach. And the team in Baylor began to do the things that a Dave Bliss team would do. Almost 20 years ago, Dave's salary as a college coach was $600,000 a year. He was a famous guy in Waco, probably didn't pay for food at restaurants. Knowing how alumni are and some of those things, he probably drove a car for near nothing. He lived, he lived as, a, as a famous person in this setting. 
And David began to believe it all. And in fact, he began to work to recruit the best basketball players he thought he could find. And when they wouldn't agree to come on scholarship, he began to help them a little bit, just a little bit. Not anything, not anything criminal, just a little bit with encouragement. Promises from alumni for a job. Promises from alumni for, for a little weekly task that they could be paid for to doing it just would happen to be enough money to kind of give them pocket change every week and more. And they began to ignore the rules of the NCAA. In fact, it came to a crushing defeat for Dave Bless when he recruited and, and got a guy named Patrick Dempsey to come to Waco, Texas. In fact, he paid him to attend school and play on the basketball team. And Patrick got mixed up with the wrong crowd. And one day, if you remember this from Texas history, one day Patrick Dempsey was killed. And what would happen? And an investigation began and, and another football, another basketball player killed him, but, but Dave Bless decided he better cover up the fact that he was paying this kid to be on, on the team. And so Dave got the team together and said, you know, Patrick Dempsey really was a drug dealer. It was a secret. I knew about it. He, he financed his lifestyle. He financed his cars. He, finances, he financed all of his, his living and his college by, by money he made from illicit drugs. And man, it created a great scandal. But it all came to a dead end when the investigation finally turned to Dave. And he had to admit that drugs were not a part of it. It had been a smear campaign. In fact, Patrick Dempsey should have never been at Baylor. And in fact, it was Dave Bliss that arranged for illegal payments to take place. And Dave Bliss would lose his job. He would endure public humiliation. He would be banned from the NCAA from ever being involved in coaching again. And Dave Bliss said in a testimony service in a Baptist church near us, I got so big, I thought it was all about me, and I thought I was bigger than the system, and I thought that the rules applied to lesser people than me. And I focused on the wrong things, and I began to compromise along the way. And by the time it got, I realized how deeply I was in, I began to lie and to try to cover up. And my greed, he said, has destroyed my life. He would lose his job, he would lose his fame, he would lose his place in history, although gained for the wrong reason. And he said, I never dreamed. My integrity would be shot and I would lose everything I've worked for just by some little things I did along the way that mounted up to something big. For Dave Bliss, though, he was able to come back to say, I had a, grain of, I had a, gra- a, mustard, seed si- a mustard seed sized grain of faith in God. And I found that when I lost all, by my actions, the only thing that stood beside me was my wife and God. And God has helped redeem me. And God has helped me put my life together again. It's never, what, it's, it's never going to be what it once was and should have been. But thank God for grace and for forgiveness and for mercy. It's never wrong to call on the name of God to help. Even for the man designated as a man after God's own heart who failed, who let those around him down, who allowed compromise to take over and end up in a 
big mess of sin, but called upon the name of God and God was able to restore him and redeem him and help him be the man whose heart was truly after God. You see, I like David's story because he's all of our stories. He's all of us. May God help us to make sure we're focused on the right thing. We're motivated by faith more than fears. We trust God to help us. And when we have sinned, we confess our need before God. And He will be responsible and faithful to us. And we trust God to help us. Amen. Amen and amen.